As a parent, you would do whatever you could to ensure that your child has a good life. But what if you knew that your unborn child would have a condition that severely impacted their quality of life? What if you could, at the earliest possible stage, choose against this? For people using in vitro fertilization or IVF, Pre-implantation genetic testing means that embryos can be screened for a litany of genetic conditions that would impact how they live. There's a wide range of potential conditions because human beings carry a wide range of bad genes uh, and a number of disorders. None of them are very common in their own right, but often when they do happen, they can be very, have very, very serious effects for the children. But is it appropriate for us to have all this knowledge at our fingertips when it comes to a life? To me, a lot of the problem here is that it creates these expectations in the future parents that are just unrealistic, you know, in terms of what they can expect their child to be. Today, we're looking at genetic testing for potential disabilities and inherited conditions in IVF and the subsequent ethical dilemmas and societal ramifications. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Toby Hemmings. The baby which is about to be delivered here is the product of space-age thinking. A baby conceived without intercourse outside the womb in a manner which our forebears would have condemned as witchcraft. 41 years ago, the first child in Australia conceived through IVF was born. From test tube babies... IVF has become commonplace. In 2018, over 14,000 children were born via IVF, representing 1 in 20 babies born in Australia. It's also become big business. The industry is estimated to generate $630 million a year in revenue by 2022. As the business has grown, so too have the technological possibilities. All of us as human beings have 20,000 human genes that make us the way we are. Dr Peter Illingworth is the medical director at IVF Australia, one of the largest IVF clinics in the country. We all carry a few dud genes in our bags. The vast majority of us, we have a good copy as well as a bad copy, and that keeps us healthy. Pre-implantation genetic testing, or PGT, was first developed around 20 years ago. In an IVF cycle eggs are induced and then fertilised to create embryos which are then grown in a lab for five days. At this stage, the embryo has two types of distinguishable cells, those that will become the placenta and those that will become the baby. Placenta cells are removed or biopsied from the embryos and are sent off for genetic testing. The embryos are frozen until the results come back. Pre-implantation genetic testing on those embryos involves sampling a few cells from the outside of the embryo and sending them off to the laboratory for testing. The exact type of testing depends on the problem that's being looked for. It's commonly done in one of two circumstances. One is where they've been identified to carry a single gene uh, that may cause health problems in the child. 
The other is where the family may have a rearrangement of their chromosomes. PGT is available to anyone using IVF. However, it's also recommended by providers where IVF has repeatedly failed in the past or where there is an advanced maternal age. The gold standard for testing any embryos is to take a biopsy of cells from, from the embryo itself. And this gives the gold standard result. If the embryo biopsy is looking for a single gene result, the, success, the accuracy rate is about 98 to 99%. Where the embryo is looking for whole chromosomes in the embryo, which, which would be the, the second category that I mentioned earlier, the success rate is a little bit lower at 96 to 97%. Couples will commonly use this approach to screen their embryos, even though they themselves have no genetic problems. In the latest federal budget, $95.9 million was announced to subsidise pre-implantation genetic testing via the Medicare benefit system. This will benefit an estimated 6,800 families. So an IVF cycle itself will normally cost about nine to $10,000, of which about half is covered by existing Medicare rebates for IVF. The genetic testing process itself costs around $4,000 to $5,000 on top, and the proposed rebate will cover most of that cost. It only applies to couples who carry a genetic problem going into the IVF. In other words, couples who either carry a known single gene problem that will have serious health consequences for their children, or couples whose chromosome testing has demonstrated a rearrangement of their chromosomes in one or other of the parents. Initially, PGT provoked public outcry over a fear of designer babies, where parents would be able to select traits such as the sex, hair colour and eye colour of their prospective child. Yet this has not become the case, in part due to stringent regulations on what PGT can be used to select against. Under the National Health and Medical Research Guidelines on Assisted Reproductive Technology, PGT can only be used to select against genetic conditions, diseases or abnormalities that would severely limit the quality of life of the person who would be born. And it's such a fascinating area. I mean, it's particularly fascinating from a legal perspective because it's so uh, oddly regulated. Isabel Carpen is a professor at the UTS Law School. Her research focuses on the ethical implications of laws surrounding assisted reproduction technologies, such as PGT in IVF. In the guidelines, they single out pre-implantation testing as one area where there are limits, but they don't have any um, limits in relation to preconception testing or genetic testing more generally, or even prenatal testing. So it's just this one little area that's become really focused on, and it's a bit odd that the only area that we regulate is actually pre-implantation testing. The limitation is that PGT may not be used to preferentially select in favour of a genetic condition, disease or abnormality that would severely limit the quality of life of a person who would be born. This doesn't mean that if all your embryos test positive for a condition that they then can't be used... Somebody who's doing IVF has often uh, been trying for years and has tried cycle after cycle after cycle. And you might have all your embryos test, say, positive. And so in that case, you can actually go ahead and implant um, one of them because you're not actually making a preferential choice. You're just choosing 
to have a child. So the thing is that the guidelines were changed in 2017 to make that possible because prior to that, you couldn't, but well, it was ambiguous as to whether you could actually choose to implant any kind of embryo that had been tested positive for a condition. So now it's just a preferential choice that's precluded. So if you have two embryos, one which has tested positive for an inherited genetic condition and one which has not, it is presumed in these regulations that you will choose the embryo without the condition. But what conditions are considered to severely limit quality of life? It's an ethical quandary that falls to both the clinician and the prospective parents. The national guidelines list criteria to be considered. That includes expert opinion on the condition, concerns of the intended parents, therapies and interventions available for the condition, the lived experiences of people who have said condition, the availability of social support, and the limitations on the current testing technology. Common examples cited by clinics include cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, or fragile X syndrome. But as Professor Carpen notes, there is no consensus. I mean, for instance, Tay-Sachs is uh, a really painful, crippling disease and a child lives for maybe two or three years but in a lot of pain. Well, I don't think there's any argument to be made that that's a a desirable state of being. I'm still kind of dithering around this question of what constitutes seriousness and what constitutes the sort of outer limits of what should be in and what should be out and how do you come to those determinations. One of the public advocates for making PGT accessible has been Andrew O'Neill, his wife is a carrier of retinitis pigmentosa, an X-link hereditary disease that leads to blindness. Andrew's father-in-law, Philip, has been impacted by this condition and was declared legally blind at 30 years old. Here is Andrew giving a TED talk about his father-in-law's reaction to them using PGT to screen for the condition. While Philip often downplays his condition by saying things like, but not having to turn the lights on, he saves money on electricity. <laughs> he was uncharacteristically serious when he told us that he would give anything he had for our children to have their eyesight. He said, if there was any chance that we could avoid passing on the disease, then we should take it. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see as many things as I could. I also had goals to get married and start a family quite young. Steph Agnew was 18 years old when her mother received a diagnosis that would change Steph's life. When I was 18 years old, my mum was diagnosed with coronary dystrophy. And then 12 months later, I sort of had a niggling feeling. And so I decided to go and get tested. I had electrophysiology done and they were able to see that, yeah, I did have cone rod dystrophy. Cone rod dystrophy is a genetically inherited degenerative eye condition where the rod and cone cells sitting in your retina die off progressively, leading to blindness. The diagnosis sort of threw me into a bit of a spin. I didn't really know anyone else with low vision or blindness or even anyone that had a disability. And so, to be honest, I thought at the beginning my life was over and um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was sort of like a bit of a ticking time bomb for me, I suppose. And in the end, um, I ended up, uh, it deteriorated over 10 years. So uh, by the time I was 30, I was completely blind. Steph's mother and two of her brothers all have cone rod dystrophy 
and live with varying levels of low vision. There's nobody in our family before my mum that has had cone-drawn dystrophy. So it, they believe it's a new gene mutation uh, that's formed. But unfortunately, uh, we have had some genetic testing done, but they can't find uh, the exact combination of genes that actually causes the condition. This is something that weighs on Steph's mind as someone who wants to start a family with her husband. Since before I was diagnosed, I've always wanted to be a mother. And then when I got diagnosed and as I was slowly losing my sight, I thought long and hard about whether I felt comfortable having children knowing that we didn't know the gene sequencing. I absolutely will have children. The condition isn't a death sentence. It doesn't cause physical pain and I still can have a really fulfilling and successful life. We have been trying to get pregnant for a couple of years and it hasn't been successful. And so we are talking about the possibility of IVF at the moment if we can't conceive naturally. But it, it, it's hard because if we did know the genes, then I would more than likely opt for IVF and implanting the embryos that didn't have the gene. And it's sort of a little bit contradictory, I suppose, but, but if I could spare my child some of the things that I've had to go through, um, because unfortunately this world is not completely accessible to people with disability and there's a lot of discrimination and unconscious bias still around... I think because it's my condition and my I have been through it and if I could select, if I could select then I, I think I would. But if all embryos came back as having cone rod dystrophy, I wouldn't then not implant one. There's so much involved with it. It's a really, it's a really moral kind of hard question. There's no prohibition on implanting embryos if they carry a genetically inherited condition like Steph's, as Dr Illingworth notes. So that parents are provided with all of the information about the potential consequences for their child of that particular genetic finding. And what we then do is we give them advice. However, ultimately it's a matter of the ethical decision for the parents to make uh, about whether to transfer that embryo or not. If the parents express a uh, desire to transfer an embryo where the child could have potentially very, very serious health problems, then we would also consider that with our ethics committee first before agreeing to take part in a transfer of such an embryo. This is not an area where we as an IVF clinic want to play God. We have to provide the parents with full informed uh, advice so that they can make an informed decision about a very, very serious matter for them, for their family. The issue Steph has is with the openness around what conditions can PGT be used for within the national guidelines. PGT can be seen to discover potential disorders that will cause children immense pain over a shortened lifespan. Or it potentially means that genetic abnormalities like the cone rod dystrophy that Steph suffers from will be pruned out, despite her being otherwise healthy, because it can be argued that this condition has severely limited her quality of life. I don't like that language um, because I have a disability, because I work in the disability industry, trying to change these thoughts around disability. And for me, being blind doesn't severely impact my quality of life at all. I know so many people 
that, you know, maybe might not have been born from that. And they are incredible human beings. They're super smart. They have a great quality of life, you know. Who's making that judgment call about somebody's quality, like is an able-bodied person saying that a person with disability doesn't have a good quality of life? Like that's not fair. So many people have so many unconscious bias and misconceptions around people with disability. Um and I think that that really affects this kind of technology because people have a fear of it. As technology improves, people will continue to uncover the root causes within our genetics about what causes abnormalities, disorders and disabilities. There is also an appetite for this information. IVF companies have recently begun introducing expanded carrier screening. From saliva samples from the prospective biological parents, companies claim that they can test for hundreds of genetically inherited conditions and the probability that they'll occur. Yet, as Professor Carpen notes, this influx of information isn't always coupled with education or a questioning of how disability is framed within our society. Well, I guess it's a... A view that um, is pretty mainstream that, you know, disability is to be avoided. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. So this is just a sort of preference for how you might live in the world. You know, it used to be that you'd really just get tested for three or four cystic fibrosis and uh, a couple of other that sort of were ethnically based. Um, now you can do this carrier screening for um, something like 500 or 600 childhood illnesses. Being able as a layperson to understand the sort of statistical likelihood when you get those results is something that I think we really need some education about. The, the condition doesn't define you. Like, you know, when we talk about embryos with um, the potential for certain conditions, you end up kind of just thinking of them as that condition rather than the other 95% of them, which is the person. And one of the things that I, I feel is that, you know, the, the focus on disability rather than on uh, social matters or things that make your life hard socially in terms of government resources and regulation is, is kind of interesting. Like I suppose I think that, you know, it seems to be like there seems to be this consensus around disability as a bad thing. In IVF, PGT has a national framework for when it is appropriate to test. Other screenings for genetic conditions, such as prenatal testing when the child is in utero, remain comparatively unregulated. We can already see the impact of this form of prenatal genetic testing, as Dr Illingworth states. IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing are a drop in the ocean. The, The much, much bigger phenomenon that's going on around the world is the role of prenatal testing. And for example, this impacts at the moment impacts on Down syndrome, that almost every pregnancy nowadays has a very reliable test carried out. And as a consequence of this, what what is happening is that children now are very, very rarely born with Down syndrome. And that is done by the um, voluntary decision of the families involved, but the effect on our society is gonna be quite significant. And it it will remove a lot of the heterogeneity of our society that makes society a rich and and valuable thing. So in that context, this change is happening anyway in the world. 
And the role of genetic testing of embryos is a tiny, tiny part of that. Only 2%, 2 to 3% of the children born today are born from IVF, and only a tiny number of them have had any genetic testing done on the embryos before they're created. So what you're weighing up here is a serious ethical discussion about the extent to which any sort of genetic testing should be done on unborn children, whether they're uh, embryos or whether they are pregnancies at 16 to 18 weeks already in the uterus. And what you can see is parents themselves voting with their feet to have this sort of testing done and to make decisions on the basis of this sort of testing. And the consequences of society are coming about, not as a consequence of some big brother decision-making, but as a consequence of individuals all around the world making these very powerful decisions about their own families. Technological advancement means that certain conditions, such as Down syndrome, are being screened out and selected against. Yet, in her research interviewing couples who are using IVF and PGT to try and get pregnant, Professor Carpen has found that people's preconceived notion about disability was challenged. Working in this area that I do, you get pretty used to people just having a pretty quick knee-jerk reaction. No, we've got to stop disability. It's a bad thing. Um, And a lot of the people we interviewed said they started off with that position that, yes, they would get whatever tests were necessary and, of course, they wouldn't, um, you know, go through with something that um, meant they would have a child with a disability. But then as they um, found themselves having unsuccessful cycles and needing to go back through the process again or get donors, you know, finding that the particular uh, embryo that they had or the pregnancy they had was so precious, their approach to what was an acceptable disability and what wasn't shifted and was more contingent on their capacity to actually end up with a live child. So I did, I was pretty surprised by that. I thought that was pretty interesting that, that you know, what for some people seems like a clear-cut uh, situation in terms of what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable for a disability, that that actually shifted. It's important to note identifying and accepting the potential for a child with a disability exists on a spectrum. Nobody wants to see their child in pain. PGT plays a critical role in minimising both the potential harm that children could suffer as well as the agony of parents having to watch their child in pain. Dr Illingworth knows this firsthand. I see some of the hardest, most troubled couples I see are couples who are blighted by these single gene problems. And I, I saw one case a few years ago of a couple who came in whose first daughter had died having had seizures in the first six months of their life and whose second child, whose second daughter, also was having the same seizures. And at that time, they, no one could identify the gene that was involved, but they, could, they were watching their second child die. What happened to them in the end? We were going to get donor embryos for them, but at the last minute, the gene was identified. And after some further problems along the way, they were able to have a healthy boy as a consequence of the genetic testing that's involved. And I I think people shouldn't misunderstand the level of seriousness of some of these single gene problems and the the appalling things it puts their parents through. And at the same time, there are certain conditions that can be seen to severely impact quality of life when this impact is not caused by the condition in and of itself, but instead from the inability of society to make space for said condition. 
Should we be focused on identifying that a child may be vision impaired, for example, or should the onus be on making the world accessible for them regardless of how much or how well they see? For someone like Steph, technology such as new apps make it all that much easier for her to navigate the world. If I didn't have my iPhone, I don't know what I would do. Um, there's so many apps on there that help me. Like there's one called Color Say, so I can just point the camera at a piece of clothing and it'll tell me what color it is. Um, there's apps that I point the camera at a piece of paper and it will read me the text on it so I can read my letters. Um, I can scan barcodes in the pantry and it'll tell me what can I'm holding. Yeah, there's just so much assistive technology that really helps. It is unfortunate but unavoidable that a parent won't be able to fully protect their child from harm. Genetic testing is technological innovation grounded in a desire to give children their best possible chance at life. Steph wants people to know that this is still possible with an inherited condition. And I just think if people meet the people, like meet so many different people with disability and just talk to them, we're all normal people, um, you know, and there's no reason to be scared. I think that there would be a less, less of an inclination to get these kind of tests done because it removes the fear and the misconceptions and unconscious bias around disability. I'd say go and talk to somebody with disability before you make that decision. Go and meet people with disability and and see all of the different things that we can do and realise that, you know, we're everyday people as well. We just do things a little bit differently or we might have different access requirements. You know, a person in a wheelchair uses a ramp, but so does a mother with a pram and so does somebody with a trolley. Like it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a a small little thing. There's nothing to be afraid of. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of Radio 2SER and the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures at 2SER.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Toby Hemmings.